The Open Nesters is a weekly podcast focusing on couples and individuals who are looking for new beginnings after their kids have left the nest. This week on the Open Nesters podcast with Mark Grasho. I go to a school in northern Zimbabwe and I'm walking around and I meet an old skinny guy. And we get to talking, and I say, so what do you, what do you teach? I teach Shakespeare. He pulls out a copy of Romeo and Juliet, and the cover's falling off, and the pages are loose, and he said, this is the only copy I have, but nobody can touch this because it's so precious to me. For some bizarre reason, <laughs> coincidence, that very morning I was in town with one of my shipments, I opened the box, what's in the box? 50 copies of Romeo and Juliet. I don't tell them. I go back into town. I come back the next day. I see him. I say, come, come here. Comes over. I said, got something for you. Looks at me. I said, this is for you. And he looks at me again and opens the box and just loses it. Starts crying and crying and crying. <laughs> Tessa, this week podcast with Mark Grasho really takes uh, giving in a whole different dimension. Absolutely. It's, and it also lets us reframe retirement because he started a nonprofit later in, as he retired from teaching, but he's certainly not retired, as you will hear. Let's hear it from Mark Grasho. Welcome, Mark, to the Open Nestors podcast. Uh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here and looking forward to talking, giving <laughs> you some of my well, story. Yeah, Mark is uh, Mark Grashaw is from uh, New York City, and he's the uncle of a dear friend of mine, who has inspired my friend because as we retire, as our kids get older, we think sometimes of what are the missions in life that have been important to us. What have we been holding? What do we want to do in the world? What creeps? What keeps us vital? And that's what the Open Nesters discusses. So give us a little background about your the value system of, of you being a teacher and then as your kids went off, kind of a little personal history first. Okay, okay so I, I'm born and bred in Brooklyn. Uh, I went to Erasmus, uh, went to University of Buffalo and came back to New York to teach. And I always wanted to be a teacher. It was uh, something I loved. I loved the day I started and I loved it to the day that I stopped. I taught at Abraham Lincoln High School in Brooklyn. I was a math teacher, but I just did about everything you can imagine. I, uh, I was the coach of the swimming team. I ran a community service club for 25 years. I uh, ran uh, open house Halloweens. I ran science competitions. Every February for 15 years, I took kids to Europe uh, for homestays. They stayed in some families in Italy, Germany, France, Japan, and then they came to visit us for nine days. Uh, it was just you know, wonderful. So what made you want to be so a teacher so much? I just, I just like being with kids. Uh, and I always felt that teaching was much, much more than certainly teaching math. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what I taught. I wanted to know my kids. I wanted to know about their lives. I wanted to uh, touch them. You know, maybe so, I so you were them. an educator rather than a teacher. I, I, I would like to believe that I was an educator. 
I would say that, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm still friendly with many of the children that I taught, and I stopped teaching in uh, 2001. So. And when was uh, that? Was that before your your own children left the nest? Did when you when you retired? Yeah, pretty pretty much. Uh, I have uh, two children. Uh, now they're 48 and 45. Uh, I'm 70, almost 77 in a couple of days. Uh, and again, they went to public schools and uh, they traveled. I, I took a sabbatical when my kids were 10 and 13 to India. And I taught school in India. Uh, and my kids didn't want to go. And then they didn't want to come home. <laughs> uh, and we traveled everywhere I lived on you know houseboats up in Kashmir to camels into the desert to whitewater rafting uh, it was uh, lots of adventures so you so, are an adventure uh, yourself I mean you'd see yes you know, uh, yeah in, in 1973 uh, my wife and I packed up our car drove it to California sold it and then traveled around the world for a year and a half Wow. Uh, so you've been an adventure in your heart to bring yeah. that spirit to kids. And then obviously got richer with the values that you're conveying through this new organization. So an organization since when, when, when did you found the, the U S the U S Africa children's fellowship, so, U S ACF. Right. So I retired in 2001 with, and it was just time. I firmly believe that you should change jobs at least every 34 years. 34. <laughs> but I didn't retire into anything in particular. I didn't have something ready for me. And then in 2003, my wife was invited to go to Zambia to one of her colleagues' sister's weddings. And you don't have to invite Sherry and I, you don't have to ask twice. You're going somewhere, we're packing. So we went to uh, Zambia, went to the wedding, and my son had friends in Zimbabwe that were involved in education. And that's so just we, south of Zambia. For And yeah. so, you know, just, as a, just jumped over the border, somebody met us, and they took us to visit uh, three rural schools. And by rural, I mean two hours off the main road. And these were really poor. Uh, basically, they had no library at all. One library had 10 books in it, no school supplies, no toys, no soccer balls, really very little of anything. Back in New York, when where I was teaching, we had a dumpster behind the school. And when you would leave the school, you would look in the dumpster, there would be math books, library books, tables, chairs, sneakers, <laughs> just about everything that... Of value to the Zimbabwean. Right. So everything they needed in Africa, we were throwing away. So the organization that I was introduced to, uh, ORAP, O-R-A-P, Organization of Rural Associations for Progress, they had 35 schools under their umbrella that they were trying to assist. So I, I said, I can go home. I can find 35 schools that'll give me everything they're throwing away. It should be too difficult. And that's was the beginning. Uh, I went home, my wife uh, applied for us to be a 501c3. It took me about a year to get all the schools lined up, bought a 40 foot container and started filling it. 
and we shipped our first container to Zimbabwe in 2005. And our container has about 1,500 boxes. Some could have 50, 60,000 books in it, plus school supplies, sneakers, toys, just about everything you can think of. And uh, that was distributed to the 35 schools. Well, after I shipped it, I had an empty container. So you might as well fill it again. <laughs> <laughs> so we kept filling them and filling them and filling them. And as of this year, we have now shipped 60 40-foot containers to Zimbabwe, to Ghana, to Sierra Leone, to Tanzania, uh, to Nigeria. We've shipped to refugee camps in Jordan, Yemen, Somalia. And we figure more, we've given books to a thousand schools. We think that more than a million children have taken our books home to read. Unbelievable. And uh, it all came from just going to a wedding. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. So, uh, and, and it's, uh, and we do it lots of, uh, lots of crazy stuff. Things, I was, I've always been open to just about anything. So, for example, I was, uh, driving home, listening to NPR, and some woman comes on the radio talking about the One World Play Project. And what they do is they ship full containers, 40-foot containers, of nothing but soccer balls to third-world countries. Right. So go home, I Google them, and I email them, and I say, this is what we do. Can, you know, can I have a container? So they want me back to back in three days and asked me, why do I want only one container? <laughs> and, uh, so they gave me three. I sent 17,000 soccer balls uh, to Zimbabwe. And because we had all the soccer balls in Zimbabwe, I approached uh, an organization in New York called Super Soccer Stars and said, why don't you send some of your coaches to Zimbabwe and run clinics for the teachers now that they have all these balls they can run drills. So for the last eight years, uh, four of their coaches have been going to Zimbabwe. This is before COVID closes yeah. down. But, uh, and running five-day clinics. And uh, who knows? <laughs> it, was, it was great. What, what a sense of satisfaction and joy that you probably have from shipping 60 containers and then another... Uh, Seventeen thousand soccer balls. I've I've experienced that in a very minor way when uh, I went to Tanzania with Kilimanjaro, and I helped one little village that never seen a white man with uh, school supplies and basic. So I've done this on a very very minor 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 tiny little thing that you do. Yeah. The village I... of uh, Tela, in uh, the foot of the Kilimanjaro mountain. We were, in, I shipped three containers to Tanzania in the very western part, uh, near the Malawi border. So the value part of it is what interests me most, both the value for you as an individual at this stage of life and the value. I mean, I watched this beautiful video that you sent about how this was the happiest day of your life when you saw these New York kids that you've been teaching all these all these years. And they had this joy of the fact that they can give and, and the element of giving it has to have inspired you at this stage of life to really, really know what 
can you name any of the impact that it's really had for you and the people around you? It, people, when people, I talk about this, people very often focus on the Africa side of the project and really don't pay a lot of attention to the American side. And uh, I do presentations in schools a lot uh, to inspire kids to understand that they're powerful. And, and one of the things I do with them, I do a few of these things, but one of the things I do with them, I, I tell them that, uh, have you seen a movie where there's a school bus with 20 kids hanging off a bridge and Spider-Man comes or Superman comes and lassos the bridge or picks it up and saves the 20 kids? And that's what a superhero does. He saves people, saves kids. Right. I said, the problem with you guys talking to the auditorium is that you're all superstars, you know, superheroes, but you just don't know it. So I'm going to show you how you can save 20 kids tonight. And what I do is I reach down and I pick up a box and I put it on the podium in front of me. And I say, here's a box. And there's things in this box. I went to Zimbabwe. I went to a kindergarten class that had 20 kids in it. And I gave this box to the teacher. And I said, you can have this. Enjoy this. And she took it. And I left. And I came back a year later. And now there were 40 kids in the class. And the only change that happened was that box. So I turned to the kids in the audience. I say, so what was in the box? You know, what did I bring? And the usual answers are uh, money, uh, money, mm -hmm. uh, food, uh, you know, books. But the answer, and I opened the box and I start taking out, I bought toys. I bought trucks. I bought dolls. I bought things that lit up. I bought things that talked. I bought puzzles. These kids had no toys. They had no toys at all. The only thing that they had was uh, a ball wrapped in paper. Uh, that was the one toy that they had in this place. So these kids started telling their other kids, we got toys that talk. We got toys that light up. You know, we got Play-Doh. And kids started coming from every direction to play with the toys. The point is, and I finish this, I stand up one kid in the audience. And I say, if nobody in this room does anything, all right, but you go home and bring me a box of toys, I'll bring it to a school that has no toys, and the same thing is going to happen. You can save 20 kids by bringing me a box of toys. And that, they get it. They, they bring, a school can bring in, after I leave, sometimes 200 boxes of donations. I'll tell you one other one. So I tell one, I tell one other, well, I tell a lot of stories, but one of the other stories I tell is I met a girl in uh, South Africa who had to walk eight miles to get to school every day. Eight miles. Eight miles. And in the summer, that's not a big deal. Uh, she has no shoes. So in the winter, when it gets cold, what she would do is she would walk about three miles find a field that had cows in it, find hot cow dung, stand in the hot cow dung, 
warm up her feet, walk another three miles, do that again, and warm up her feet again, and then get to school. So I turned to the 200 kids in the auditorium or whatever, and I said, if you do one thing for me, if you go home and you all bring me in one pair of shoes, that means 200 kids don't have to do that or don't have to stay home uh, for the day when it gets really cold. And you're powerful. You can change lives. And I'll do, I'll do you one more if you want. <laughs> so I stand the kid up in the audience and I say, okay, um, you're, uh, you're a math teacher. You teach all these kids math, okay? And I'm going to give you a present. Uh, I'm going to give you a box of pencils. And I pretend to give her or him a box of uh, pencils. And then I say, so what's the first thing you do with the pencils? Sharpen them. Well, that's, that's the standard answer. Or give them out. Or some people say thank you. But the answer is... Break them. She breaks them all in half because she doesn't have 20 kids in the class. She has 40 and she doesn't have pencils. So I said, you have to understand that they need these things. So I want you to go home, open up your drawer. And if you've got pencils in there, I want your pencils. And if you have crayons, some of these kids have never seen crayons. They have a color with a crayon in their whole life. No color. And and I love that. I saw the video of that New York City collection that, that that inspiring day. And I don't think we've noted that you work with elementary school kids. This is not high school kids, correct? No, I work with everywhere. Okay, everybody. So, elementary, middle, high school. So the, so the video everybody. of the young kids really touched me because they were so articulate yeah, at yeah. ages, I don't know, 5 to 10 or 11. Incredible. They, they were talking right. about how much they feel like they're they now have a, have a connection to doing something good in the world that all of a sudden is, is giving them a new, a, a, a sense of themselves of what they don't need. And some of them were like, I have so many things I don't need. Right. And we're such a consumer-based society. And for young kids to start recognizing that, to me, that's also such a benefit of all this amazing work. And, and it's, a, it's a teachable skill. You can teach kids to be empathetic, you know, to care about other people. I mean, I'm a math teacher. I could have just stayed in my classroom and taught math. But, you know, there's so much more to teach. So much more to teach. The fact that you've been doing this naturally for many, many years, uh, supporting Africa in many ways, does any fact that the kids uh, have left the nest have any effect on that? Where you have more time to do it? Where... Uh, give me that transition when they actually the kids have left the, the nest. Go go back to that time, maybe twenty twenty five years. Well, this ago. is, well, this, is this is complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for the people in the world, uh, people out there in the world who think I'm doing really good work, I'm doing really important work, and. Uh, whether you're a doctor or you know doing what I'm doing and teaching, it's very easy to excuse yourself for not giving your family your full attention when you're loading a container or collecting stuff. Yeah. And it's a fine balance, I think, when you're raising your kids to be attentive to your kids, to their needs, what their lives are about and what they're doing, and uh, doing what's important for you. Uh, 
my kids, you know, my kids, uh, you know, travel the world with me. Uh, they have they've been to Africa, they've been to India, been to other places. So they're very empathetic to the world's problems uh, themselves. Uh, and uh, they, you know, my son still does a, a lot of work uh, internationally and in sporting international groups. And so, and but that transition that you and your wife decided to do this project more sounds like you had more space to do that. I mean that you know after the kids got older and we became more independent. So that's what I that's, think. I'm that's where I, that's where I want to go back to that moment of conversion where the kids actually left their home. No, was was well, it an I, impactful time, or did it make did it make any well, difference um, for for the for the effort that you've put through? Uh, did it? Well, I can, I, I'm. My son lives uh, four blocks from me now. <laughs> His office is in my house in the first floor, so I don't know if we've transitioned away <laughs> in a traditional way. Uh, my daughter, my daughter lives in Cambridge. Uh, we talk maybe three or four times a week. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, it's still very tight, caring, nurturing. Uh, and, you know, we just, I think all of us like to do good things. And, you know, we're, they're all good parents. They, they're very kind and nurturing to their children. So I think some of it, you know, rubbed <laughs> off. Okay. I, I, I hope. And the idea that they're close by is doesn't have to be like that, drastic binary black and white of it oh now we're empty nest doesn't mean that you don't have amazing relationships and they could even live close by our kid still lives in our home so we're not about the empty the nest the transition is clear we know what the impact yeah. is i think over time the fact that you and your wife developed this project to help bring you closer and that's what i wanted to ask about even though i know you've lost her so if, if you don't mind speaking to that if or if it's too sensitive you don't have to no i uh, my wife and I were married almost 50 years. Uh, she worked in public health. She worked uh, in primarily in pediatric AIDS long before there was a cure. So in the beginning, it was really taking care of children and making them you know, have an honorable death back then. Uh, uh, and we, as you know, we got older and we moved, uh, you know, into this Africa project. It was a joint project. She went to Africa with me, and I sort of did all the collections, and she did all the bookkeeping. She did all the taxes. She wrote all the thank you notes. Uh, uh, I think I got the better end <laughs> of the deal, <laughs> but uh, and and she came to Africa. We took my granddaughter to Zimbabwe. Uh, when she was uh, about 10. I used to take groups uh, to Africa before COVID hit. I used to take 20 people uh, to Victoria Falls, to uh, on safari, and then they would teach in my schools for five days, which was pretty awesome for everybody. And then they would have the last few days in Cape Town before they went so my So my question, Mark, was about how that might have helped your relationship. You know, people after they retire, they've either grown apart. As we invite you to explore more, particularly through our website and our resources that list all the things that I talk about and that we 
point to on the Open Nesters podcast, I'd like to point you this time to one of our first guests on the concept of anti-aging, which in, in my book also dismantles some of the concepts of retirement, that we look at it in that way because it's it's giving us vitality now as our as our podcast does. And one of them, uh, the anti-aging clearinghouse is called oldschool.info. One of our first guests, Ashton Applewhite, who helped me learn about anti-ageism, wrote a book called This Chair Rocks. And this old school clearinghouse basically is free, carefully vetted, and it's resources to educate people about ageism and help to dismantle it as many of our guests on the podcast do. Or they can't find something to do together. So I do wonder how you think that impacted your time with your wife around that around that time of life. No, I just, I, we just, I think we, because, I mean, we traveled for a year and a half together and we were never apart. I mean, we did everything together. We picked tobacco in New Zealand <laughs> together, kind of far. You know? uh, I should say that in our marriage, we had, and I should share this, we had two rules in my marriage uh, that were unbreakable, that they were written in stone. And I offer these to everyone out Please. there. Uh, the first one we called Rule 14. And not that there were 13 others, we just decided this should be Rule 14. And the rule is if I'm angry at you or I'm upset about something you're doing and I confront you about this, you are absolutely forbidden to raise another issue. You cannot say, well, you did this, this, or this. You must deal solely with what I'm raising. And it, the arguments never escalated. Uh, we resolved them most of the time. We didn't go to bed not talking to each other. And it took us 25 years to get this rule. <laughs> this rule didn't come naturally. But if, if you stick to it, and if the person says, no, I'm sorry, you can't do that, and you back off, and then you, you'll figure it out. The other rule, which is almost of equal importance, if I say to you, what do you want for dinner? You can absolutely not say, I don't know, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you have to come up with, you have to come up with two things. You don't have to eat those two things, but if I ask you what you want, you have to name two possibilities, and then we have to go from there. Is it only about dinner? What about what no, about, it's about what about sex? It's, what about? Uh, it's about, it's about... Uh... I don't know. That's that's your marriage. That's I'm talking about my marriage. <laughs> or I mean, that's so interesting. I love that you. You no, it was narrowed down to dinner. That's what he's talking about. You, you narrow it down to dinner. It's not anything like uh, which movie you like to watch. I don't know which one you like. No, well, well, you can adapt it, but my rule, our rules for for yes, <laughs> you can adapt it to whatever your relationship. I love that. <laughs> that is such good advice. So, so you um you you obviously have a lot of humor, in in how you viewed things together, and I think for me, I always like to say the fact that you have good values and you can laugh at yourself, and laugh together, really does help sure. be able to fill your lives at all stages and and i think you know keep a connected marriage also so so how are you doing i know the, how's the grief i mean how do you process are you your work is probably really important it's uh, it's it's very difficult um 
I did join a Memorial Sloan Kettering support group, and there was eight of us, and all of us were in long-term marriages, some more than 50 mm -hmm. years. And uh, you know, it's, we, I think we had facilitators for about two months, and then they left, and now we have continued supporting each other, going to each other's homes, we're thinking of you know taking a little vacation together, and people people react to loss very differently, uh, especially in long term marriages. Some people really just shut down, and they their life becomes much smaller. They stop cooking, they stop going out, they stop doing things. And part of I think the strength of our group is we're trying to get each of us to break out a little bit, to volunteer, to do other things, to engage. And just to be with each other is is helpful to be, you know, more social. So, um, you know, my house is, I live alone. You know, I eat my meals alone. I shop alone. I cook alone. And, you know, memory triggers all over the house, you know, and who knows when the next one pops up. But you know, you, you manage. You know, you, you you know, you try to fill your life with as make it as rich as you can, and you know that's what I'm trying to do. How long it's been? Thank you for sharing. About, about a year and a half. That's very fresh, yeah. Um, so, and I, you know, I'm thinking about you know dating again. So it's, um, it's hard to wake up alone all the time. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so you know. And my kids are trying to get me on dating sites. Good kids. Yeah. yeah. And my, my wife and I talked about this long before, you know, if something happens to the other one. Have a good time. I mean, you know, one person dies and two people shouldn't yeah. die. You know, so. Well, that's probably the, I mean, your work, it sounds like, I know pandemic probably was really tough on this non on, on your work, on your new, on your nonprofit work. So, it's coming back, and does that give you new life to get out again and talk to kids? I mean, it seems like that's a big part of who you are, and and you have so much passion around it. I I love life. I love being out there, and and what's nice is with me, I'm kind of open to every everything, you know. So, you know, if if, if somebody comes along, and you know, years ago they said. We do this great thing in my school. We have an open house haunted haunted house, open house Halloween, where we invite the entire community into our school and all the teams and the clubs take rooms and everybody trick or treats in the school. I can do that. <laughs> I can I do that. So we did that for twenty years until I until I left. And we had a really scary haunted house. <laughs> Yeah. We had we had a, a dark hallway with with about thirty stuffed bodies in wow. it that you that, that you had to walk down and mixed in with three real kids. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you definitely like to have fun. Who There are still kids crying to this day. <laughs> the trauma. <laughs> the trauma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, and you're still an adventurer. You mentioned that just a year ago, without your wife, you were you went to the Dominican Republic and 
And that was a, you know, tell us about that. that. In my wife's memory, we're building uh, a learning center in Sierra Leone. And I took a filmmaker with me to document the project. And then we came home and we had a debriefing and we're at the table and she says, well, next month I'm going to the Dominican Republic and I'm going to swim with humpback whales. You can you can do that? <laughs> I said, yes. And so she gave me the name of the company. <laughs> that night I'm on the computer and uh, next month I booked the trip and flew down to the Dominican Republic. They had a, it was a 146 foot boat with 20 of us on it. We went 90 miles north overnight to uh, something called the Silver Bank. Five to 6,000 humpback whales migrate through the Silver Bank every summer, well, every winter. And so every day we'd get in a small boat, go out to the, to the Silver Bank, see the whales, go in and swim with them. Was it scary and, for you uh, that they're going to swallow up like Jonah? <laughs> nah. I've been a, I, I said, I've been a competitive swimmer my whole life. So, Are you still yeah. swimming for exercise? And I still you race. Still race. Well, we <laughs> can talk about that because that's the vitality of what how you stay fit. What do you do? Where do you race? I belong to the uh, the masters swimming. Uh, I used to swim at Union Temple, but they closed their pool, so now I swim at the Y. I swim three to four, well, three to four times a week. Swim so about a hundred lengths a workout. And for my age group, I'm presently the third fastest in the country. Ah, wow. In, back, you know. in backstroke. <laughs> backstroke. Wow. What you you are just continuing to keep it keep us inspired about what's possible, Mark, truly. No, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh it's a lot. You can, there's so many things. I mean, people, you can, there's so many places to volunteer and to be with other people, to be with kids. Uh, it's a rich, it's to a rich be a superhero. It's very easy. We're all, we all can be yeah, superheroes. I can see that. It doesn't take, it doesn't take much. Nope. Just, you just have to stop being a bystander and say, hey, I, mean, I can right. do this. You know. Well, thank you. I think people can do it at any age, and you've really been an example of that. So what would you say you need most for USACF if if we wanted to help you or people wanted to support you? I'm a horrible fundraiser. <laughs> <laughs> horrible. I, I don't write grants. Uh, you know, I, I'm the one who still rents the truck, drives out to Long Island, picks up 400 boxes <laughs> of children's books, gets two guys to help me unload the truck. And what I should be doing is writing a grant to get somebody else to, to do that. So anybody out there who's a good grant writer will have them contact you. What's the best way to reach you, Mark? <laughs> you can email me or my our website. Our website is uh, usacf.net. We do an, an incredible things. Uh, one of the things, uh, I don't know if you, I should go into this, but you can cut this out. I don't know. We, we, I'll tell you a, a quick story. Please, yeah, 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 story. Story. Okay, so I, I go to a school in northern Zimbabwe and I'm walking around and I meet an old skinny guy and we get to talking and I say, so what do you, what do you teach? I teach Shakespeare. He pulls out a copy of Romeo and Juliet and the cover's falling off and the pages are loose and he said, this is the only copy I have. 
but nobody Whoa. can touch this because it's so precious to me. For some bizarre reason, a coincidence, that very morning I was in town with one of my shipments, opened the box. What's in the box? 50 copies of Romeo and Juliet. I don't tell them. I go back into town. I come back the next day. I see him. Come, come here. Comes over. I said, I got something for you. Looks at me. I said, this is for you. And he looks at me again, opens the box, and just loses it. Starts crying and crying and crying. Yeah, and uh, he never was able to talk. And he takes the box and goes off. So here's the segue. We have developed something that we call the bridge pie. It's the size of my hand. Okay. This is an information hub. Information is put into this device. And it could be first grade books, second grade books, algebra, geometry, Wikipedia, con series, anything you want, you can, you know, you can put into this device. Uh, this device is not connected to the internet. So if I go into an empty classroom anywhere in Africa or anywhere in the world, and I have a few tablets, iPhones, uh, iPads, they can all access all the information in there. And this thing also comes with a projector. This thing costs $200. Okay. So in here is all of Shakespeare. So if this teacher had a bridge pie and had a projector in a classroom anywhere, he could have taught all of Shakespeare. And that's one of the things we're trying to, you know, work with. So that's your newest project? And is that something people can donate towards sure. specifically? So the, 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 the real fantasy is you go to a teacher's college, uh, you train 100 graduating teachers on the bridge pie. Uh, when they graduate, they all get one. And whatever schools they go to, they get 10 tablets. So you can instantly create 100 learning centers for not a lot of money. Well, you've taken math and, to a whole new And who loads, who loads the information to this uh, bridge? Uh, well, there's, there's something called a Raspberry Pi, which is uh, the basis of this device. But we've sort of, and I'm not the, the IT person in my group. They're out in, you know, in California. They've enhanced this to make it more user-friendly. We can also put in uh, books of the country's own language. So, you know, it's not all English. It can be, you know, Indabelli, Shona, Swahili. So it can be, it can be adapted locally. So a lot of stuff. This, this has been the most mind expanding for the, our value system in the world podcast that we've done. Yeah. And, and if, this is so touching. Absolutely. And if you have to give an advice to people that are in your age and our age, uh, in, in one sentence or two, what advice would you give people that are in the open ester stage yeah. or um, widower that have uh, lost a spouse? What would you advise them uh, and how would they look at the world? It's just, the, the world is incredibly rich. There's so many things to do, but you have to look. You have to look. If you stay in your house, 
and you grieve and everybody you know grieves you know there's no right way to grieve but if you can find the strength there's an awful lot out there that can make you happy and can make other people happy and for me to touch another life is probably the best thing that i can do absolutely well thank you so so much for this time is there anything else you'd like to you know, say to what to say goodbye or to things that they're still bubbling for you that you wanted no, to convey. I, I just, uh, it's just nice being on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> nice being on the planet. Thank you so right. much for this time today, Mark. Mark. Thank you very much for being on the openness. Okay. Uh, thank you. Amir, you and I asked Mark a number of times about his kids and as and the open nester stage but i believe that he didn't feel the t transition of that and i think because he was doing good in the world it's like he didn't feel as much that fall off and the kids obviously had an example of watching him and 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 letting and letting him becoming not really retired which is what not yeah. a word i like anyway you yeah. don't like <laughs> he, he was he was already on a mission he was already working uh, his philanthropy so to speak uh, mission and uh, the fact that the kids have left the house or they were there or not uh, really did not make a difference so it wasn't really a transi transition per se that happened in, in the openness of stage but it's continued and enhanced itself once the kid have left the nest I, I, I truly believe that that's what happened here I mean, you know, I like what he says that you have to change a job every 30 or 40 years, which is really uh, a cute little thing to say. It. But the main thing that I get from that is every one of us has a superhero inside us that we can make, make a big difference. His superhero is being able to collect well-needed product for schools, uh, for kids, for toys. Uh, in Africa, and that is a superhero. And, and to educate others to find their own superheroes so they can feel their power to give. And that, to me, is is such an Im important message here because as well as being open to where life takes us, and he mentioned that a few times, that we, if we can... He, he found a lot of his things just by being open, by being in Zimbabwe and, and realizing, wow, they could really use that we're, we're throwing out all this stuff. Like how much stuff we all throw out and consume. How inspiring to know that there are things people can do to recycle and regenerate and make the world a better place. So many people do so many great things and they all go under the radar. Uh, they are incredible and unnoticed. And as he said, the world is a rich place to be and you just have to look where you can really make a difference. And he did it. And I actually would like to dismantle the idea that he retired. I mean, he calls it retired from... No, I think he's he not just retired. Because that word, it's interesting. A, a friend of mine recently pointed out that in Spanish, the word for retirement is jubilación. It's jubilation. <laughs> I mean, why do we call it retirement? It sounds so tiring. I mean, I... I've never understood that. So I'm really happy that Mark is one of the people. Like the empty, of, the empty of nesters. Yeah, we have to change some of our, a lot of our language in this, in this society. And, and how about the, his, his, his two rules? Rule number 14, uh, <laughs> not, uh, not having to raise another issue. How about that?
Yeah, I like that one, and I, and I like the other one better since I'm the one that always has to ask what everyone wants for dinner and then figure out what to make. Like, I'd like some answers. Give me two choices. So that's going <laughs> to be my new mission. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. You've been inspired me uh, to exercise more, to uh, really start looking around and see where I can make a difference, even though I said always that we can always make one kind, one simple act of kindness, random one every day, but you've inspired me even to expand that. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the Open Nester Podcast. We are The Open Nesters. Uh, you can visit our website at theopennesters.com, a double N in the middle, S at the end. And we also have a Facebook page. Don't we, we, have, we have a lot of social media. Instagram's growing slowly, but we need your support. We always appreciate when you share with friends. And actually, we would be so honored to get comments from you because I keep hearing them randomly from people I meet. Oh, I've heard your podcast. Oh, I've heard your podcast. But I never know what people really get from it. So it would be so such an honor for me to hear what you liked most and if there are things that we can address more and if you have guests or suggestions. So feel free to email Tessa, T-E-S-S-A, at theopennesters.com. And again, on our closed Facebook page, Instagram comments, all welcomed. We really thank you for listening and making us a podcast that keeps growing. Yeah. Email Tessa at Tessa at theopennesters.com. Until next time, this is Amir. And this is Tessa. And we will see you on the next episode. Ciao. You have been listening to the Open Nesters Podcast, a production of Kiwi Publishing and Media. Executive Producer, Tessa Crone. Music by Yoni Avi Patat. Audio Engineering by Lucid Sound. Web Design and Blogs, PJ Ewing. This podcast is available on all podcast platforms. To learn more about each episode and guest, please visit us at theopennesters.com. For questions or to be a guest on our podcast, email tessa at theopennesters.com.